0: Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North, in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. So there have been this sort of rush of shows over just the past few months that are all sort of telling the same story in a different way. They're telling these stories of startups that went really, really badly. I'm thinking in particular of some of the document, uh, documentaries and drama series uh, like We Crashed, which is all about the rise and fall of WeWork. Or uh, Lula Rich, which is all about a startup women's clothing startup um, called Lula Row. There's another one that's out there called The Dropout which is all about the company Theranos. And then even closer to home, for those of us who are Christians, the the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, is from this same sort of genre of show or documentary. And in each one of these, they're all kind of the same. They all sort of ring the same, all of these shows, because each one of them is centered. All of these companies are centered around a leader who has this sort of charismatic superpower. These people that can walk into a meeting that they have no business being at, much less walking out with the contract that they could never dream. And people around them seem to fall under a spell whenever they begin to open up their mouths and tell their stories. Because I've been watching all four of these shows or listening to all of these shows, I've kind of tried to been piece, something, piece something together in my mind. I've been trying to figure out what it is that attracts us to these stories. I mean, because in the one sense, they are this meteoric rise and then this huge crash. What is it about these stories that we want to hear? I mean, obviously, they're making them for a reason. Four different companies. One was made by Netflix, one Hulu, one Christianity Today, and one Apple TV. Different companies all telling a version of this same story. What does that say about us? I'm not quite sure I've figured out the answer to that question yet. But as I've been thinking about that, I have settled on the fact that whether we like it or not, whether we care to admit it or not, we have a level of admiration for these people. The founder's myth is a huge deal. It's almost cliche at this point to think about the garage where IBM or Apple or Pixar started. And we see these people who start these companies. We see these people who begin these movements and we're simultaneously attracted and repulsed by their ability to get things done. They can walk into a room and bedazzle people. They seem to have a force of nature inside of them where they get whatever they want. And I think that's, that's the thing. They're able to get whatever they want. And I think there's something inside of each one of us, inside of you and me, that likes that, that kind of wants that, that kind of wants that superpower to be able to get whatever we want. Sure, we don't broadcast this to everyone. Like we don't tell everyone, yeah, I'd like to get my way all the time. That would be gauche. That would be, you know, you'd kind of be a jerk if you said that out loud. But in the quietness of your head, think about when you are drifting off to sleep, what are you thinking about? Or when for some reason you're in your car and the radio isn't working and so you're alone with your thoughts, what are you thinking about? Are you scheming a way to get revenge on your coworker? Are you replaying an argument with your spouse and remembering that one good zinger that if you would have gotten and got that one in, it would have been really great. Or maybe you're a student. Maybe you're thinking about how to get back at that bully at school. The prophet Jeremiah tells us that our hearts are deceitfully wicked and that we cannot even know them. The depths of that wickedness is beyond our understanding We don't even know how bad the problem is. But God is concerned not just with our actions, but all of those things all the way down to the thoughts and intents of our heart as well. That's why when the author of Proverbs, Solomon, was listing out those things that God hates, those things that are an abomination before him, it's not just the things that we do, but he says that God hates hearts that devise evil. Not just our actions, but even the daydreams of payback and revenge that we all sort of dream up when we think nobody else is watching. This morning, I want us to look at the story of one of the most wicked kings in the history of Israel, probably the most wicked, in fact, Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And while most of us have never executed a murder for hire, like we'll read about today, What I want us to see is how the motions of their heart, how the steps that it took to get them there may look more like our hearts than we care to admit. So if you would, if you're able, would you please stand with me? I'm going to be reading 1 Kings chapter 21. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard, that I may have it for a vegetable garden. And because it is near my house, and and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father. And Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would not eat food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it will please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. She wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite him and let them, Bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of the city, the elders and the leaders who lived in the city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them. It is as it was written uh, in the letters that she sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, "Naboth cursed God and the king." So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, "Naboth has been stoned. He is dead." And as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, arise and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give to you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, arise. Go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth shall dogs lick your own blood. And Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Bashar, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dogs shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. There was no one who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites has done, whom the Lord had cast out before the people of Israel. City Church, this is the Word of God, written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. If you haven't heard this story before, I will admit that it's kind of a doozy. I mean, the, the whole thing about the dogs licking up blood is enough to sort of make you shake your head and go, didn't know that was in the Bible. I mean, it gets pretty violent. I and mean, the story, in a way, is pretty straightforward. Naboth, seems like a good guy, has a vineyard. Ahab, the king, wants the vineyard. Naboth won't give Ahab the vineyard. I mean, that's kind of where we're at. And he gets real childish, doesn't he? When, when Naboth tells him, no, I'm not going to just like sell you my vineyard, the, the king goes to his room and he turns his back to everybody and he refuses to eat. Sounds like a 14-year-old me when I broke up with my first girlfriend. It's childish behavior. He can't have what he desires, and so he pouts. But I think there's two details in this story that really make the characters and what's really going on here pop out. The first detail is why Ahab wants this vineyard. It's right next to his house, and he wants to make it into a vegetable garden. If you've read the Old Testament a bunch, that's a strange phrase. Vegetable gardens don't show up in the Old Testament. In fact, they only show up when you're talking about one place, Egypt. Egypt is the only place in the Old Testament where vegetable gardens are mentioned. It seems like the Israelites, much like Ron Swanson, are not huge fans of vegetables. Amen. Ahab wants to be like Egypt. He wants to grow a vegetable garden. And then Naboth says no. And the reason that Naboth gives is... I don't, I can't give you my inheritance from my father. That may fall on deaf ears from us, but the way that the people of Israel, that God set the land up throughout Israel was that God apportioned a different section of land to every family in Israel. And there was even a social safety net in the Old Testament where if you had to sell your land, if you fell on such hard times that you couldn't keep your land, There was a thing called the year of Jubilee, which happened every 50 years. And that land was supposed to transfer back to you and your family. So you couldn't sort of build up generations of poverty or even generations of great wealth because there was sort of this every 50 year reshuffling where all the land went back to the family inheritances. So when when Naboth says, no, I won't sell you this land... He's saying, I'm not going to sell you this land because this is my family's appointed portion of the nation of Israel. This is the one Joshua gave us. This is the one when God drew out the boundary maps. This is the one I got. I can't give you this. See, what's really happening here, this is actually a very religious argument. Ahab wants to be like Egypt. Naboth wants to follow Moses. See, even our hearts can begin to trick us. Our schemes, our plots, those fleeting thoughts we have at bedtime often reveal the things that we truly worship. Let's, let's take a moment and have some thoughts for your thoughts. Let's think about the things that we think about. When you have time alone, when you are sort of in your own head, what you find is that those things that come to your mind are the things that you probably actually worship. Most of us here are Christians. Most of us would say, I totally worship Jesus, the triune God. Would you like to know about the Trinity? I can tell you more about that. But in reality, in practice, where our hearts and our minds go are to things like our security in our place our influence, or maybe our wealth. Whether it's your thoughts go to the love and affirmation that you're looking to get from a certain person or the power that you want in a certain situation, our daydreams are actually windows into what we really worship. That was the case for Ahab, and that is the unfortunate case for you and I. And so his wife comes in and finds him sulking, finds him not eating, and he tells her the reason why, and she takes matters into her own hands. She writes a letter to the people of Naboth's town and tells them exactly how to execute this murder plan. All, he's gotta, all they've got to do is get two people to accuse him of blaspheming God, and then he'll be liable to, to being stoned to death. Now, what's interesting is if you have read the story of David and Uriah, there are actually a lot of the same things going on here. When David was was struggling and was was in the midst of his relationship with Bathsheba, it said he was confined at points to his bed. And then David sends a letter in order to have Uriah executed. And it says in, in both of the cases that they have other people do their dirty work. David has his general carry out the the murder of Uriah. Jezebel does it for Ahab. It's how sneaky and deceptive our hearts are. We don't even just use ourselves and use our actions to accomplish what we want. We actually use other people at times. I'm sure you've never sent a letter that pays people off to do a murder for hire. I hope you haven't. If you do, there's several detectives that I can put you in touch with. But think about this. Have you ever planted gossip at the right person to sow doubt about somebody who you want taken down a notch? Have you ever used the words of another person to shield you from your own intentions and feelings. Well, I didn't say that. I'm just telling you what somebody else said. How often do we use others and dehumanize them just to get our own way? We turn them into flying monkeys who we just want to do our bidding. Beloved, this cuts us deep. This should call into question the way that we interact with others. That's the way Jezebel interacted. That's the way Ahab did. And it's no surprise to us that this plan actually works. The idea that she sent to the people uh, in Jezreel is exactly what happens. And Ahab hears about it and he goes down to claim the vineyard as his own. Evil triumphs. The good guy dies. It's not the end of the story. God doesn't ignore our sin. He doesn't Let us go unchecked because no sooner does he walk into the vineyard than God sends Elijah to him, sends this prophet. And friends, these two men have some history. If you have read the story of Elijah, you might remember that Elijah's main sort of foil, the bad guy in all of Elijah's story is Ahab and Jezebel. If you grew up in church and sort of remember the Sunday school lesson about the prophets of Baal up on top of the mountain trying to get Baal to bring fire and Elijah dumping water on his wood and then getting all the fire and it all burning up. If you remember that great Sunday school story, you might remember that the financial and religious backers of the prophets of Baal was none other than Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab had a standing bounty on the head of Elijah. They were not good friends. In fact, do you catch how Ahab greets him? <laughs> "'So you found me, O enemy.'" I mean, that sounds like some Victorian duel is about to start. It's one step away from I'm a Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. It's almost there. That's the kind of relationship, but Elijah doesn't flinch. He's sent by God to call Ahab to justice. And in doing so, he uses an odd phrase. He says that Ahab sold himself to do evil. You see, whenever, whenever we give in to our temptations and our desires, we are selling ourselves. We're trading who we truly are for the fraud that sin wants to make us into. In fact, the passage says again later that Ahab did this more than anyone else. Beloved, we aren't who we were made to be when we choose evil, even evil that other people cannot see. Sin promises us satisfaction, but it is a mist. I was thinking about this this week. I have a a really good friend. And this really good friend was in ministry for, for 15 years. And the last five years of it was really, really hard on him. And so he decided that it was probably best for him and his family, for them to step away from ministry. So he stepped away from ministry and he started working for a roofing company and he's making a lot of money. I mean, well over six figures. And I called him this week and we were talking and I said, friend, how are you doing? And he goes, you know, this this funny thing is happening. I thought, you know, if I just maybe made more money, then my life would be more peaceful. You know, maybe, maybe if I just get out of ministry and I just go make some money, you know, put some money in the bank account, save up for my kid, you know, then I'll be at peace. And he's like, I preached that that doesn't work, but I wanted to try it for myself. And I'll tell you, friend, it does not work. It's the same as us. We know that these things aren't going to work. We know that they're not going to satisfy. We know that they're not going to fulfill us. And yet what do we do? We say, "Well, well, maybe it'll work for me. Maybe it'll work this time. It's because church sin literally makes us insane. It literally puts us out of our heads, but we sell ourselves to it anyway, just like Ahab. And so the prophet Elijah hands down God's justice to him. God is going to cut down Ahab's family. His lineage will no longer be the kings of the northern kingdom of Israel. And then God gets real specific. And that's where the sort of dogs part comes into our story. I won't linger there, but you all read it. But what happens next is probably the most shocking part of this story. It's part of the story that I don't think I ever remembered. I don't think I ever saw before this week. Because the most shocking part of the story is that Ahab seems to realize the gravity of his crime. Ahab seems to hear what God is saying because he humbles himself before God. Now, the text here isn't clear whether, whether he repented, whether he fully turned to God. There's some, some weirdness in the way that he went about dejected, which is usually like he more felt sorry for himself, but he humbled himself. And God, in response to his humbling of himself, relented the disaster for a generation. He gave him a stay of execution. Think about that. The most wicked king of Israel the guy who set up temples to other gods all over the country, the guy who had a standing bounty on the head of Elijah, the guy who had Naboth killed simply so he could have a vegetable garden, the guy who sold himself to do more evil in the sight of the Lord than anyone in Israel. God hears that guy's prayer. Think about fill in the blank with all of the evils of this king. God hears that guy's prayer. And then God not only hears that guy's prayer, but he shows mercy to him. God doesn't undo justice. Justice is still coming, but so is mercy. Beloved, no matter what the dreams or schemes of your heart look like, no no matter how far you've allowed these things uh, to take root in your soul, no matter how much you have sold yourself to do evil, there is still mercy for you. That's the beauty of the gospel of Jesus. That's the beauty of the story that we see in the person of Naboth. Think about what we have in this story. We have a story of an innocent man who keeps the Old Testament law by not selling his property, whose enemies accuse him falsely of blasphemy, who is taken outside the city and is unjustly executed. That's the story of Naboth, but that's actually also the exact story and pattern of the end of Jesus' life, isn't it? Jesus perfectly keeps the Old Testament law. Jesus is then accused of blasphemy by his false accusers. Jesus is then taken outside of the city and unjustly executed. The story of Naboth is a reminder of the story of Jesus. And that place, that place where Jesus was taken outside the city, the place where he was executed are the exact place where justice and mercy meet. All of the punishment stored up for you and for me is placed on the shoulders of Jesus in that moment. Jesus shows his mercy and forgiveness to us because of what he did on the cross. He bore our burdens so that God might hear our prayers. That's why we can turn to him no matter how far we've gone. That's why we can turn to him even if we're not ready to admit what goes on in our own heads. Beloved, God calls us not only to repent of the sins we've committed with our hands, but the ones that we've committed with our hearts as well, our schemes and evil desires all the way down. But oh, how beautiful, how assuring that God knows those things about you, about me. And he turns to us and offers us mercy and forgiveness yet again and again. And again, what a joy to know that God is giving us new hearts, that he is shaping us and remaking us from the inside out. Let's be a community that's willing to let our repentance go more than skin deep. A people willing not to repent just of their surface sins and the stuff that other people caught us in, but of the desires all the way underneath and the stuff, the quiet things that no one ever knows. And would that sort of lead us to Jesus and his mercy again? And would that unflinching love move us upwards towards him and outwards towards showing that to the people we encounter in our lives here in St. Pete? Let's pray.